0: Hello, fancy friends. I really wanted to talk to you about birds. Now, a lot of people like birds. They're not as hard of a sell as snakes are. Many people set up bird feeders and bird houses and they buy bird seed. But for me, I actually didn't really notice birds until later on in life. I had always loved animals, but I always tended to favor mammals and also reptiles and amphibians because I could catch them and look at them up close. But for some reason, I didn't pay as much attention to birds. When I first really started noticing birds was when I went to Kenya in 2005. I became friends with somebody who I worked with, Salash Ole Kwasaba, And he introduced me to birds. Now, previously, I had definitely noticed the shimmery birds, the colorful birds. But he really showed me just how awesome birds can be and really the joy of bird watching. And birds are amazing for several reasons. They're found everywhere and they're easy to see. Now, mammals, a lot of mammals come out at night, so you're going to need special equipment to see them, like camera traps, or most mammals are actually underground as rodents or other small mammals, or they're flying around as bats. That's where actually a lot of mammal diversity is. But with birds, pretty much anywhere you live, you are going to see birds out your window. Even if you go to Antarctica Even if you live in urban cities like New York City, you are gonna find some pretty amazing birds. Because they are so easy to see, you can apply a game to birds. You can create what is called a life list and try to see as many birds as possible. And some people really devote a huge amount of time and even money to be able to see birds. I am not as obsessed, but I still keep a life list. And once you buy a bird book, and if you can afford them, buy binoculars. I have a link on the show notes page on my favorite binoculars and you can start identifying birds. Once you open up your bird book and actually start paying attention to the birds around you, you'll realize there is so much more diversity than you thought. And even if you're somebody who really favors the colorful birds, the flashy birds like myself, you'll notice that there's a lot more of them than you expected than some of the obvious ones. So birding is such a fun activity, and I highly encourage you to take it up. In several episodes of the Fancy Scientist podcast, I wanted to go over attracting different taxa of backyard wildlife. I definitely wanted to talk about birds. I am not a bird expert, but I could, I do know some things, and I could research the topic more. But I thought it would be really fun to have my friend Lauren Farr on the podcast. She is an ornithologist, and she loves science communication. I met Lauren because she was actually supposed to come to my yard to temporarily capture birds using a mist net, And band those birds, which means putting a little steel band around their leg, which has numbers on them so you can track them. And she is a graduate student at North Carolina State University studying the effects of urbanization on birds. In this episode, we talk about bird basics how to attract backyard birds. Is it okay to feed them? And if so, what kind of food should we be giving them? What are some things that maybe you are doing that you shouldn't be doing to attract birds? And so much more. But the really great thing about having Lauren on is I arranged for her previously to come on, but the spark of an incident with a birder in New York City, who is a black man, and a white woman, revealed some of the dangers that Black birders face in the United States. To be honest, this is something I never thought about. And scientists in the Black community who were birders started a whole movement really in just a couple of days Because of this incident, combined with the death of George Floyd, they wanted to bring attention to the issues that Black birders face. They started the hashtag Black Birders Week, and last Sunday until yesterday was the first ever Black Birders Week, and Lauren, who is a Black American, is going to tell us all about Black Birders Week, in addition to bird basics for your backyard birds. So let's get started talking about everything birds. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Before we get started, I hate apologizing, and I never recommend people apologize before they give a talk or anything like that. But I just wanted to say this is my first time recording, and I'm not really happy with the audio quality it's not horrible by any means but it is a little like digital sounding in some areas so i'm definitely going to be choosing a different platform in the future but i tested this out with my sister and it sounded perfectly so i'm not quite sure what happened when i did the interview with lauren but just please know in the future that i'm going to have better audio quality when it comes to recording interviews Hello, Lauren, and thank you so much for coming to the Fancy Scientist podcast. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I am super, super stoked and super excited to be here. It is an honor to be
0: on your podcast, so thank you again. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being my first guest. So my first question is a really basic one, but why should people even care about birds?
1: So, birds, just in general, from my perspective, and anyone else who birds, they are just awesome. You know, birds in particular, they're a great indicator species for like environmental change. So, science wise, like climate change, urbanization, things like that, they are, you know, super great indicators for that stuff. Uh, And also just particularly birds are just, you know, amazing for scientists. So like what I do, I misnet and capture and ban songbirds. And so really with that, scientists are able to capture these birds, to ban them, because each bird is given a particular steel band. And once these birds are banded and they're let go, their information is recorded into a system. And what people can do is when someone from another state or another continent, anywhere, if they just find these birds and see that they're banded, they can go back into this system and just see where these birds have come from. So really, you know, in essence, it just tells us a lot about the bird in general, like its migration patterns and things like that. So yeah, birds, you know, again, are just great indicator species for science.
0: I always think of birds as a gateway drug into nature because they are everywhere, they are easy to see, Um, and I didn't learn that until later on in my life, but it's so much fun to, uh, like you see your regular common birds, but then there's so many birds that you really don't pay attention to unless you learn how to identify birds. Exactly. And and birds are a much easier sell than snakes too. My last episode was on snakes, and a big reason why people (laughs) like birds is uh, because they're so pretty.
1: Exactly. It's like everyone loves birds because birds are just these cute, you know, little feathered dinosaurs all in our yards (laughs) and everywhere. And so there's no, there's, there's no question about birds. It's like birds are just birds.
0: (laughs) So what advice would you give to someone who's looking to attract birds to their backyard?
1: First, you want to determine what kind of birds you want to attract to your yard, whether it be songbirds or Owls or raptors? So I'll start with the easier one. So I'll, I'll go with our, our raptors, our hawks, and our owls. Well, with any bird, really, it's all about three things to me. So you want to make sure you have the right habitat, food source, and a water source. So, particularly talking about raptors and owls. So, for a water source, these birds, they don't visit your everyday bird baths. So, if you're fortunate enough to be by, you know, a small body of water or anything like that, these, you will most likely find these kinds of raptors around. For your food source, this is particularly interesting because if you don't cut your grass for long periods of time, this develops rats and mice to come. And especially if you have feeders, your songbirds are very messy when they eat. So when they drop food, this in turn may attract, you know, your rodents, like your mice and things. And these are really great food sources for your raptors, for your hawks and your owls. And lastly, habitats. These birds love coniferous or deciduous forests. So anywhere around you where there's land and tons of trees, birds want to feel safe and they want to have a safe and great habitat to raise their young. And so If you have a great forested area, these birds, they love branches. So trees with a ton of branches is great for them. And also for owls, particularly, if you want to put a nest box, an owl nest box in the back of your yard, that would be great to attract owls. If you're looking for more of the cuter species, um, such as songbirds, again, it's all going to depend on your water source, your food, and your habitat. So we'll start with food. So depending on food, we kind of get more particular with it. It's all about what kinds of food you're putting out. So if you want to attract things like your common backyard birds, like uh, the tufted titmouse or northern cardinals or Carolina chickadees, they love mixed seeds. So any mixed seed with sunflowers, corn, pellets, things like that, they absolutely love those. If you want to attract your backyard birds, such as woodpeckers, in my backyard, I have a ton of red-bellied woodpeckers and a ton of downy woodpeckers, they love suet cakes. If you get yourself a suet feeder and put suet cakes in there, those birds, they will absolutely love them and, you know, continue to come to them. And even your white-breasted nuthatches, they will love those as well. You can also put out tray feeders and put things in there, such as like mealworms for Eastern bluebirds, or you can put all different kinds of fruit in there and can attract your, you know, Baltimore Oreos or your Vireos, those kind of species. They will like that particular food source as well. So your water source this is easier because songbirds love a good bird bath so just to have you know a good little bird bath in your yard they will absolutely love that and then for habitat wise these birds also love forested areas um, anywhere that these birds can feel safe and raise their young and hide from predators if you have a good brush pile, this is really great for attracting your Carolina wrens. They love a good brush pile they They will also love to maybe nest under your car tires and things like that. So look out for that kind of stuff. But these are also some really cute birds. And a thing I forgot to mention is going back to your raptors. Some people, they're concerned attracting these birds to their yard. And you find a hawk or you find an owl or anything, don't be alarmed. Because these species are really great for the environment. Like I said, if you want to get rid of those mice or any kinds of rodents, snakes, any kinds of lizards, they love those. So really, they do us a really big favor in the end.
0: And I know you said that forests are important for these species, but it does seem like some species are able to survive even with not a ton of forest. I know for our mammals and e-mammal that green spaces were really important, even small green spaces. And here where I live in Raleigh, I live close to the Greenway and I see red-shouldered hawks and barred owls all the time. And even in people's backyards, I I was walking my dogs and I saw a red-shouldered hawk just on somebody's basketball net. So it doesn't have to be these like really pristine areas. If you live in suburban or even urban areas, you can get these types of birds.
1: Exactly. Some species, they can thrive in urban areas while some cannot. And... This goes all back to urbanization. So there's been research that has been done by multiple scientists to kind of see what birds can survive in urban areas and what can't, which ones will be affected. And they have found that, you know, like your cavity nesters, they they love to nest in buildings. So there's tons of buildings in urban areas. So of course they will thrive and everything, but your cup nesters, they otherwise, they kind of have limited space to find things. They, they, They may try, but the outcome will most likely be in favor of those cavity nesters. And it's great that you mentioned the thing about the hawks and stuff, because those have increased in urban areas as well. In the UK, particularly, they have seen Eurasian sparrow hawks. They have blamed them for the decline in their house sparrows. Scientists were noticing that, oh, there's this huge decline in house sparrows. I wonder what this is coming from. And just all going back to urbanization, predator-wise, raptors and hawks and things like that, they will prey on your average common backyard bird, which is another reason why people kind of fear them too, because they don't want their little birds to get eaten, which I can completely understand. (laughs) But birds can well survive you know, in urban areas, depending on their species.
0: Yeah, predators have to eat too. I feel bad for both of them. I know, I know. So you mentioned food and I frequently mention not to feed wildlife because I work with mammals and most of my experience comes with mammals. And with mammals, when you directly feed them, some species can become really aggressive and lead to problems like bears specifically. With birds, that isn't really a problem. We don't really see aggressive, bold birds that we have to put down. So that's why it's more okay to, to feed birds. But can you talk about some best practices with bird feeders to make sure that mammals don't get the food? And if somebody wanted to enhance their backyard naturally, like what type of plants should they grow? <laughs>
1: Sure, of course. Plant-wise, you really want to avoid invasive species of plants. So any kinds of common natural plants will be fine for birds. And then feeder-wise, it depends on your feeders as well. So if you have tray feeders, if you have just your everyday little average bird feeder, and then if you have suet feeders, if you have these like wheel feeders, I think they're called, there's like this thing, it's kind of like a wheel and it has all the seeds compacted and birds, you know, can have a challenge of getting the seeds out. And then also for your hummingbirds, you can't forget your hummingbirds. So, you know, if you have any types of red feeders that attract hummingbirds, you know, this will be great for them as well. To keep animals out, the one animal in particular that I have problems with, and I'm sure a lot of people do is squirrels. (laughs) Squirrels love to get in a bird feeder. And really, the only way that I have found to prevent this from happening is just a good, sturdy uh, squirrel stop feeder. So these feeders, basically, when the you know squirrel tries to get in the feeder or lands on the feeder, the feeder you know closes, so the squirrel can't have access to the seeds, and then the squirrel just becomes all kinds of confused. I haven't had any any interactions or anything with any other mammals getting into my feeders. You know, in my areas, it's just been squirrels, but In particular, just keeping your feeders clean. This is just another area to go into with feeders is that you always want to keep your feeders clean. So for your songbirds, for their feeders, you just want to make sure that nothing's getting caked up. After rain and stuff, it's very likely that your seeds will get caked up. If you leave the feeder out for long periods of time and just something was stopped up in the feeder and something's caked up, sometimes the seeds can sprout grass and we don't want that. So keeping your songbird feeders clean, whenever you change them, wash them out just with water, with your water hose or anything. For songbirds, that's fine. If you want to include a little bit of bleach to put in there just to kill off the bacteria, that works as well. Just be sure to wash it off real good. So now your hummingbird feeders, that's a difference. They need to be washed out. I would recommend probably every two to three days. And the reason why I recommend this is because If you put nectar in the feeder and if it's left out for long periods of time, especially in the sun, bacteria can start to form. And this is very detrimental to hummingbirds and we want to keep our little feathered friends safe. So every two to three days, take down your hummingbird feeder, wash it out good with warm soap and water. And um, apply some bleach to it as well to get that bacteria off. And then um, rinse that real good and then fill it back up and you're all good. And if you want to go the extra mile, you can also wipe off your feeder poles um, and things like that. And then also, just a side note with the hummingbird feeders, is it is not necessary to add red dye. And it didn't really occur to me until recently that there's a lot of people that really don't know that because we think, oh, well, we know hummingbirds like red. So although the feeder is red, let's add some red dye and maybe we can enhance the number of hummingbirds that are coming to our feeder. And although it has not been scientifically proven, there has been some links to the effects um, of wildlife rehabilitators finding volumes of red dyes in in hummingbirds. There's really no need for red dyes. Your hummingbirds will come to your feeder regardless of the red dye, as long as the feeder is red. And most hummingbird feeders are. Keeping up that practice with keeping your feeders clean, in my opinion, is the best way to attract more hummingbirds in general.
0: That is a really great answer. I agree with you about the red dye. For me, I think about it as a human perspective. I just think of all those additives as unnecessary and bad for you. And if dyes can potentially be bad for humans, imagine what they can do to these little birds. I did not know you need to clean your hummingbird feeders so much. I made a big mistake with that. I will be cleaning it a lot more.
1: All birding and just keeping up with birds in general and learning about them is a learning experience. And I, I will be honest. I mean, I'm going to put it out there. Before I really got into, you know, the whole birding thing and backyard birds, I used to put red dye in my hummingbird feeders. And I had no idea. I mean, I, I thought the same way as everybody else. Oh, red red dye. They're, they're going to love it because it's red and it, it's fine. And I didn't use to clean out my feeders that much either. And so it's all a learning experience. And it's like, once you learn from it, you can teach others.
0: And you have a hummingbird food recipe on your website. I do. I do. So I have a
1: post um, on my website. I have a blog post called uh, supplemental feeding for hummingbirds. So it's really basic and really simple. Every four cups of water to one cup of sugar and mix that up and you are good to go. The hummingbirds will love the sugar water.
0: And what's your website where people can find
1: this? You can find this on my website at www.elphar, that's P-H-A-R-R.com. I have a whole blog on there. I, I dedicate this blog to talking about any kinds of bird topics, wildlife topics. And since I am in graduate school, I will hit on the occasional grad school professional topics every now and then. But it's mostly been dedicated to birds and
0: wildlife. So we are talking about improving habitat by adding native flowers. And one thing I wanted to add was another thing that you can do by not doing something is not using pesticides because a lot of birds eat insects. And when you're trying to reduce the pest species, you're also reducing the non-pest species or even the pest species that the birds eat. And that's something else to consider for improving habitat.
1: That is, that is a great point that you're hitting on because really you are right not a lot of people think about what you know if if one thing is affected in you know the food web how the next thing in the food web is going to be affected so just like you said with the insects um so your basic arthropods a lot of nestlings they need arthropods in their diet they need that nutritional value to develop fully and so arthropods if they're affected. Birds are going to be affected in urban areas. Scientists have seen a decrease in arthropods, and they think it's because of all the, like you said, the pesticides, the chemical pollution, and car exhaust, which I've found was pretty interesting. And that was really an aspect that I had never thought about before. It's all, you know, it's just always been about the birds, you know, and then you got to take a step back and look at it and be like, okay, well, if this species of animal is affected, you have to look at the big picture and be like, well, geez, if that species is affected, then birds are going to be affected. And really you kind of become more aware of that other species and you take into you know account what's happening with that species. I mean, that's really a, a great point that you hit on that more people need to keep an open mind and just recognize the world around them and look to see how these various species are being affected and by what.
0: Yeah, I actually came across a study recently. It was on a tit species and Although the birds ate both seed and insects, the ones that ate insects, their nestlings were more likely to survive. So it was a a question of quality versus quantity of food. Okay, my next question is, how did you get so interested in birds?
1: I love when people ask me this question because I can talk about it forever. But really, it all started really with my uncle. My uncle was a very, just your average backyard birder. He loved to just go out on his porch and just watch the birds. And, and I saw how he loved to take care of his bird feeders and just purchase all these kinds of bird feeders and just have this like little natural area where he puts all this stuff together and he just watches the birds just day in and day out. And I would be like, as a little girl, I would from home call him up and I would have my little bird guide and I would just flip through through the bird guide and I'd be on the phone with him. And I'd be like, Hey, have you seen a Northern Cardinal today? Like, or, Hey, have you seen, you know, a Carolina chickadee or have you seen, seen a red bellied woodpecker? And I would just go with him on and on about that. But really I would have never thought that I would be where I am today, just such a bird nerd, because originally I wanted to become a veterinarian all my life. That was my main goal. And really, I think that's one of the things as with any little kid, okay, I want to work with animals, but a veterinarian is kind of the only thing that you're kind of really exposed to with animals, seeing it as a job and everything. And you're exposed to that and you're like, okay, well, vets are awesome. They work with animals. I want to work with animals. I want to be a vet. So I ran with that idea until I got to undergrad. And I had just realized that I just didn't think that this was a field for me. I I interned, you know, at a veterinarian's hospital over the summer. And I loved what they do and do not get me wrong. Veterinarians are awesome. But I knew if there was something that I was just like, this just isn't it. I mean, I just, I don't think this is it. So it, it really wasn't until My undergrad experience where I met my two research advisors and I have to give them credit because, you know, one of my research advisors, she was the one who kind of got me into the whole research thing and being passionate about research. And she had a similar story to me that she wanted to be a vet. And so I totally ran with that and I geeked out about it because I was like, wow, there's someone who, you know, is, was like me that went on the same path and then her path completely changed and she found something totally different. And then my other research advisor, he was the big time ornithologist in my school's department. And I started doing research with him, with birds, and I absolutely loved it. So from my sophomore to senior year, I got the whole research experience, but particularly from my junior to my senior year, I worked with birds looking at um, changes in their vocal harmonics. And that's when I I really honed in on the whole bird thing. And I was like, yes, this is for me. And then from there, I always wanted to go to graduate school. So um, currently, I am a graduate student uh, at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm pursuing my master's in fisheries, wildlife and conservation biology. And my one thing was whatever I do, I I just wanted to be with birds. Whatever research I conduct, I wanted to be with birds. My research advisor, uh, Dr. Karen Cooper, she's a well-known citizen scientist. She took me in. And ever since then, I mean, it's been wonderful. Currently, I am researching the urbanization effects on avian morphology. So everything that we hit on about urbanization, that's what I've been learning about and reading about and just noticing all of these effects that urbanization can have on wildlife species and specifically with bird species. So ever since then, I've just been on this whole bird kick and I'm just a big bird nerd and I absolutely love it. And I'm not ashamed to voice it or tell somebody to love birds, just just love them.
0: (laughs) And your research is focused on cardinals specifically.
1: Yes. So mostly cardinals. A little bit more, there's going to be like a mixture of species in there as well, but most of the data has been on northern cardinals. So yes.
0: I met Lauren because I signed up for her Citizen Science Project, and I think I found out about it through Karen Cooper, and it was basically an email like, do you want to have someone miss net cardinals in your yard? And I was like, yes, absolutely. We have a ton of cardinals in our yard. And for those of you who don't know what a cardinal is, or maybe from another area of the country or world, there are these beautiful Red songbirds, they have a red bill and pointy top. I don't know. What do you call that? What's the professional yes, word? For the, tufted. They're tufted. <laughs> I'm really bad with specific scientific <laughs> words. You are fine. <laughs> but yeah, so, so Lauren was supposed to come here in May. And we had been corresponding, but unfortunately, the COVID situation happened and her field season was delayed. But hopefully, we'll be able to get her out to our yard soon. COVID just, you know, it just put a,
1: it just put a halt on everyone's life and it's very unfortunate. But fortunately, I was able to pick up another research project and it it was, it was amazing because, like I said, most of the data is from Northern Cardinals. So I was like, oh, what a coincidence. But still looking at urbanization effects. Before I was specifically looking at noise and light, but this one is kind of taking into account all kinds of urbanization effects. So looking at birds' uh, breeding patterns, their migration patterns, looking at predation, seeing all of that stuff that's affecting them, looking at their morphology. So specifically, I'm looking at their morphology. I'm looking to see if there was a change in beak size or feather length or a wing shape, anything like that. That's what I'm I'm looking at with that, and this research is actually it's based um, out of the citizen science project Neighborhood Nest Watch, which is out of the uh, Smithsonian in Washington DC. So this research group was kind enough to let me have access to their data and analyze it in this way for my thesis. Since of course my my original thesis got affected by COVID, but I mean, it all, it all worked out. It, it was a big adjustment, I will say to, you know, kind of hop on something totally different, especially when you put in all your hard work and time into your first project and you were super stoked and excited about it. But then now, unfortunately it had to change due to unfortunate events, but I mean, it's totally fine. My first project, Cardinal Capture, it's, it's looking like we're hoping that it can continue in the fall just for me to collect some pilot data, maybe for a potential PhD. It's all so all isn't at a loss. So that's, you know, great that it worked out, you know, for that in that way.
0: You are not a scientist until your research changes dramatically. That's like the first hurdle you have to go through being a scientist. Is your field field something will happen in the field that will get into the way or in the lab and you will have to change directions.
1: You are absolutely (laughs) right. It's just that passion that you feel that, you know, it just validates that like I, I am a scientist and I care because when something like this happens, I think some sometimes people may look at it as, oh, okay, like your stuff changed. That's fine. But really you as the scientist and the researcher look at it as like, no, like my, like my research is my baby. Like this is like, I I, am putting all my life into my research. And like you said, you know, you're a scientist when that happens and your passion just like comes full surface and it's just there.
0: You mentioned your uncle introduced you to birding, and I had a similar experience, not with a family member and much later on in life, but I was introduced to birding when I studied abroad in Kenya. Somebody that I worked with started showing me birds, and I didn't know how to look for birds previously to this. I mean, I would see the pretty shining ones, but one of the most fun things about birds, as you mentioned, is identifying new birds and then marking them in your book or creating a life list. Can you give us some tips for people who have never birded before, like how they can get started or what should they look for in birds? Of course. So really,
1: if you want a bird, just start. There's, there's no credentials that you need to be a birder. There's nothing that you need to do specifically to start. Just, just start. I myself started by just going out in my backyard and just observing all of the birds that were around me, and some, and some like your like your common birds, like your northern cardinal or your tufted titmouse. You have those kind of birds that you see and you just and you know what they are. And there's some when you get into sparrows and warblers. Oh my gosh, my gosh, it's just. If that's just a whole nother ballpark of identifying and learning what those birds are. And do not get me wrong, I am no expert at, you know, identifying birds. Like I have the select few that I can identify and then there's some where I am just completely, you know, clueless. And that really hones in on the fact of where it's always great to know someone who is more of an expert than you are. Don't take it as like they're they have the best credentials and they're, they, they know everything. Like, no, they've just had more experience and they know more than you. And honestly, that's just how you learn. So if you do want to go out and bird, I would suggest, you know, maybe finding someone who birds been at it more than you. If you're fortunate to know someone who does that, have them go out with you, have them walk with you, have them test you, have them, you know, have you, listen and look for birds and ID them by not only by sight, but by sound. I fortunately have a few people that I've met at North Carolina state and just through this whole birding thing that I will take a picture of something, whether it be a bird, whether it be a nest, whether it be an egg and I'll send it to them. And I, and I'll be honest, I feel funny doing it because it's like, you know, you put yourself out there as like, Oh yeah, I'm like this big time ornithologist. Yeah, I know everything, but in reality, it's like not everybody knows everything and even the experts get stumped. So sending those things to people and being like, hey, I think this is this, but I'm not sure. And having them correct you, you remember that. And you know, some of these people that I know, they'll come back at me with the right answer and then they'll be like, well, look at the feather markings, look at the chest markings, look at the eyes and you remember that. And I will admit it's, it's a ton to remember because there's tons of birds out there but really to me, it all just starts with someone who's more of an expert than you in this field, who can work with you and you just establish that, those sorts of things. But if you want to start Getting better at your bird ID by um, sight. There's tons of apps.
0: If you do not know of any experts personally, there are several ways you can try to find some bird experts in your community. Look at local nature organizations' websites. The National Audubon Society and the Sierra Club are two major national organizations focused on wildlife. They likely have local chapters that go out and do things like bird watching. You can also go to meetup.com and see if there's a birding group around you. You can go to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's website and click on the Get Involved button. And they can connect you to birding opportunities for citizen science. This is where you participate in real scientific research. And you can also go to scistarter.org. This is another large database of citizen science projects, and you can look for a bird one locally near you.
1: So the one that I recommend is eBird. You can have this app and, you know, whenever you see a bird or whenever you even hear a bird, you can open this app, you can log it, and then you can submit it to them for conservation efforts. So not only are you doing yourself a favor and gaining all this excitement by seeing all the birds that you saw in one day, but you're also helping conservationists. And then with Birdsong, because Birdsong, my gosh, I... Now, I am no expert in birdsong at all, but (laughs) birdsong is very, very, very hard. And so once you get the hang of it, some birds say their name, like the Eastern Phoebe. They say, Phoebe, Phoebe, like, and you just remember that. Some birds have a tune. So Eastern Tohe, they say, drink your tea, like drink your tea. Don't be, you know, afraid or alarmed if you just if you just can't get bird song down. So what I recommend is there is the uh, Merlin app by Cornell and even some um, Audubon apps that you can download. And what I like to do personally is I like to sit down in my free time and just scroll through the birds. I mean, just scroll through any birds and they have a little um, sound icon that you can click on and you can just hear these birds and just listen to them and learn. But again, any of this and all of this takes practice. Whenever you have time, go out and bird, go out with a group, go out with friends and just observe and listen and take notes and honestly that's just the best way that I can advise anyone who wants to start birding. And then another thing, you don't need fancy equipment to bird. I mean just just get you a good pair of binoculars and then sometimes I'm old school so in my ornithology course, we would go out and bird and our professor had us have a bird journal that we would write down, you know, the birds that we saw. So usually I'm really quick to tell somebody, oh, have a bird journal, but then I keep forgetting. Well, we all have technology now, so you can just open this app and just log your birds. So just have that with you. And if you want to, which I I still need to do myself, which I would love to do, is invest in a professional camera to take great bird pics. That's always a great reference to look back at and see what birds you saw, and name them and things like that. So really, birding is great. And birding is just a great way to get outdoors and in nature and just appreciate everything that's around you. Not only the birds, but just nature itself.
0: I actually underline the birds that I see in my bird book. And some people think that is a crime. They get so mad at me when they see that. (laughs) but I'm old school. I like books too.
1: Exactly. I love, I love books. That's what, that's what I like really when someone asks me like, Oh, well, what, you know, what do you recommend when I go out and bird? I'm like, take your field guide and take a notebook and write the birds down. And then someone always comes back at me and they're like, well, you know there's apps, right?
0: One of my favorite things to do is when I travel and if I know I'm go- going somewhere where I'm going to be outside a little bit, then I will buy a new bird book for that area. I mean, depending yes. on where I go, I have a U.S. guide, but if I'm going to a new country, then I'll buy a new bird book. That's always yeah. fun to do.
1: Yes. And that's another thing that I'm so oblivious to is that when I when I post pictures, whether it be on my Twitter or my Instagram, people, some people I will get, they'll, they'll comment and they'll be like, oh my gosh, I've never seen that bird before. And then I'm, I'm, I'm always quick in the back of my mind to be like, really, you've never seen this bird. But then I have to remember that everybody is everywhere and there's different bird species everywhere. So you do have to take that into account. So that's, you know, really great. Like you said, if you travel, you know, pick up those things and you'll get to know the birds in that area.
0: Can people tweet photos to you and have you identified them? Oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> oh, good. I thought you were going to say no. <laughs> yes. okay.
1: No, I, I, I will. I will admit. Sometimes I, I will like if somebody contacts me and they're like, "Oh, hey, I have this. I have this bird. That would you? Would you mind IDing it?" I will admit. Sometimes I kind of get a little like, Oh, like, please, like, please don't let it be a, a little worried or something. <laughs> I'm like, please don't let it be some hard bird. Like, Oh my gosh. Like, but like I said, but sometimes it works out for the best. And then that all goes back to if someone, you know, sends me a photo and I don't know it, I'll reach out to my contacts and be like, Hey, Someone asked me to identify this bird and I have no idea what it is. Can you? Would you mind identifying it for me? Do you know?
0: And her Twitter handle is at LDFAR. It's P-H-A-R-R. You can tweet out your photos. You can tweet with the hashtag Science Twitter. And usually that will get it to somebody who can identify it. And other sources for identification you can upload to iNaturalist. But speaking about Twitter, there's actually a really big movement that we're wrapping up this week, but it's Black Birders Week, the first ever Black Birders Week. And can you tell us a little bit more about that and your involvement in it? I can. So I personally know
1: some of the co-founders and organizers of Black Birders Week. And I just have to say that I am like so proud of them because they did a phenomenal job with this week. I had listened to one of their live streams, you know, on Instagram and they were saying like, we put this week together in 48 hours. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Wow. Because this week has got nothing but great publicity from CNN to Forbes magazine to the Audubon Society itself. It's, it, you know, it's just been a great movement and being a, a participant in it and participating in, you know, the challenges and things. Black Birders Week, it, it it really, it really highlighted two things for me. It highlighted, one, the the controversy and the problem of Black people who bird or Black people who go out in recreational areas and the stereotypes that are put on them by other people in that area. It's just, it's, it was Eye-opening to me, and ever since this week, I've you know kind of I've kind of held back my feelings about it, but I I kind of like to discuss it now because really growing up, I have been around nothing but a diverse group of people, so I knew all about white supremacy and you know underprivileged African Americans in STEM or just anywhere in general, and I knew about that, and it was in the back of my mind, but it really didn't hit me until I came to North Carolina State, which was a bigger school than where I went to in undergrad. My undergrad school was very tiny. So, so Wingett University, shout out to them. But that school was very tiny. Whereas where I am now at North Carolina State, It's a huge school and you're faced with so many different challenges. And really when I came there, that was the first time that it ever hit me about Black in STEM and minorities in STEM. And so with Black Birders Week, not only did it hit me with hearing about those personal stories from these blackbirders who have gone through these things, whether it be them birding or in the field. But another thing that this week has highlighted for me is just seeing all of the minorities in this field of wildlife biology, ecology, natural resources, and seeing Blackbirders, Because I've read some of the stuff on, you know, Twitter and even Instagram, and so many people have said that this week has been such an inspiration for them, and that that they never really knew that there were so many African Americans or minorities in this field, and now they feel welcome into it, and they don't feel so secluded anymore. And so this week was just phenomenal to participate in, and it's an honor for me to know some of the co-organizers of this movement. And not only that, but this movement, it did hit after the incident with, you know, Christian Cooper in Central Park, which was very unfortunate.
0: I just wanted to give a brief summary of what happened with Christian Cooper in New York City. I have the full video on the show notes for this podcast. You can go to com forward slash bird dash basics. What happened is Christian Cooper, who is a birder, was in an area of Central Park that was um, a little bit more forested, a little bit more wooded called the Rambles. And there was another woman there called Amy Cooper, which actually they're not related. It's crazy that they had the same last name. And they had an argument because Amy Cooper's dog was off-leash. And in the rambles of Central Park, you are not allowed to have your dog off-leash. So Mr. Cooper was simply telling her to leash her dog, and they got in an argument. And Christian started videotaping the conversation, and Amy then brings out her phone, and she threatens to call the cops. And when she calls the police, she says that... Mr. Cooper, Christian Cooper, was threatening her life, which was an absolute direct lie. So this video is an example of how white people can use their privilege to get out of negative situations. And thankfully, nothing bad happened to Mr. Cooper during this interaction, but it could have been a similar outcome as George Floyd. So, if you haven't seen that video, I highly recommend you head over to the show notes and check it out for yourself.
1: But it was really, it was really great for him to come on their live stream, which was hosted on the Autobahn uh, Society's Facebook page on Thursday, I believe. And it was really great for him to come on there and talk about his experiences um, with that, and which was again another eye opener. And then they had Dr. Drew Lanham from Clemson University and he came on the second session and he talked about his points and what he's been involved in while he's birded. And again, it was just a big eye-opener to hear that because, like I said, I've been around a a huge diverse group of people that it just never really honed in on me that this is happening to Black people and Black birders, especially in this field. So it was, you know, very eye-opening. And then Two, this week is also in honor of all the lives lost to police brutality. So George Floyd, of course, Albury, Breonna Taylor, like all of those people. This week was in honor of them as well, To For Black people to have a voice, and especially with Black Birders Week, now Black people have a voice in science, I believe. So it was a really great week. Really great week.
0: Yeah, it really has been. And even for myself, I have thought about my white privilege with my fieldwork in eMammal because I would set up camera traps behind people's houses. And for most of the project, people volunteered and they set it up in their backyards. But I was doing this experiment that required a manipulation that was just a little bit too burdensome to ask people to do and it had to be done in a certain way. And I would ask their permission to set them up And usually the first time they would be there, they didn't have to be there, but I would come back every three weeks to change the memory cards and then to collect the camera traps and the people weren't home. And there are a couple of instances where I just literally went like behind the people's homes and people saw me and I was like, if I was a, a black man, I'm sure they would call the cops on me. And even one time they were looking at me like, what are you doing? But I think it was because I was a white woman. They're like, oh, she probably is like doing something she's supposed right. to do. Right. But but this week really made me think about Black people being in recreational spaces and how other people might perceive them. And I have I really only birded with Black people in Kenya, which, you know, it's not an issue there. And I, it really caused me to pause and and think like, wow, this is a whole thing I never even thought about.
1: It really, it really does. I keep repeating this point because I was just so hesitant to be that person to be like, I knew about it, but I didn't know about it to this extreme because I, I get that feeling that like, if I tell somebody that, you know, anybody that they would look at me and be like, well, Warren, like you're like, like you're black. Like you should, you should already know this stuff. Like what? And it's just, I mean... It was just really an eye opener because really, I don't know if maybe I'm just oblivious to the fact or, you know, if I was oblivious to it before. But I've I've never I've never had an experience myself to where something, you know, like this has happened. And it was just really eye opening to just hear that and be more aware about it. So now it's kind of like now when I go out, it's kind of in the back of my mind to be aware about. But none of the less, like the stories were, you know, powerful and they were life-changing in the least. And it just again, it makes everybody more aware of what's going on and it makes a lot of people want to help and support this movement. Really, again, hand like hats off to you know the these the co-founders of Black Birders Week who put this out here because I think one, it was a, a great time for it, and two, I think it's helped so many people realize what's going on in this in this world that we live in especially with birders and especially in the in the natural sciences field in general
0: yeah and it was a really positive t- thing to do in a moment of a lot of heavy news and we are nearing the end of that week but If you missed it, you can still follow the hashtags and read all the stories and watch all the videos. So the main hashtag is Black Birders Week, but you can also look at the hashtag Black in Nature and Black AF in STEM for stories about Black Americans in the sciences. Okay, I have two final questions for you. Of course. This should be easy or maybe hard, actually. I don't know. So my first question is, what's your favorite bird? And then my second one is, what bird would you love to see that you've never seen before?
1: Oh my gosh, I love these questions. (laughs) So the first one is pretty hard because what's my favorite bird? There is a ton of amazing And wonderful and beautiful bird species out there but so i so since i do work with little passerine birds so i i so my favorite bird you know is little
0: passerine. in case you don't know what a passerine is i just wanted to go over that quickly these are birds of a specific order which is a type of scientific classification and it includes more than half of all the bird species these birds are sometimes known as the perching birds or songbirds and they are distinguished from other birds by how their toes are arranged so they have 3 pointing forward and 1 pointing back.
1: And so my favorite bird is the eastern phoebe and people ask me why and i simply say because i love their little tail flick. They like they're when they when they perch on branches or anywhere they just their tail just flicks and i just i don't know what it is but it's just the cutest thing to me and so the so if you don't know what the eastern phoebe is it is a species of flycatcher there's plenty of flycatchers i don't don't even ask me how to identify flycatchers oh my god cuz there's just a bunch of those as well
0: <laughs> i can attest to the difficulty of identifying flycatchers after i graduated from college i did an internship in Northern Arizona for the Bureau of Land Management. And part of my internship was looking for the endangered Southwestern Willow Flycatcher, and we would go to this habitat and use the and use playbacks to try to lure the birds out. These birds are so incredibly difficult to tell apart from other flycatchers. And if you actually look at the bird book, the, the distinguishing features are located underneath the beak so you have to be below the bird and it's really subtle it's really difficult so song is the best way to tell them apart and these birds are territorial so we would use a territorial song and then the idea is that if there is a male it will come out and sing to defend its territory and then you can tell if that species is present there or not
1: but the thing about them is they can catch insects in midair so hence why they're called flycatchers but yeah the eastern phoebe would have to be my all-time favorite bird in the world and i know it's it's funny because you know some people you know they'll be like oh a cooper's hawk or oh a barn owl or you know bigger birds and i'm just like no it's it's just a little eastern phoebe for me <laughs> but to your second question what bird i would love to see so I would love to go to Africa to see the shoebill, which has been named, you know, one of the most terrifying birds in the world. And I just think they're totally amazing. I, I would love to see one in person. And I've, the, the closest I've seen one is, is the, you know, the Natural Science Museum. <laughs> they, did, they did have one on display for uh, people to see. They are terrifying. If you just look into their face, it's just like, Complete terror, but I would absolutely love to see a shoe build.
0: <laughs> They're on my bucket list too, and I think I was close to their range once because don't they live in Central Africa? I believe so. Yes. Yeah, yes. but I wasn't. I wasn't close enough to be able to see them. Yes, but one day. Yes. The Shoebill lives in Central Africa, but much more on the Eastern Africa side. And now I remember that I was looking for Shoebills when I was in Western Kenya. Salash and I went to Western Kenya just specifically to see the birds there in the Kakamega Forest. I remember looking for Shoebills when I was there. And then I also had several days in Uganda, but we never saw a Shoebill But next year, the Society for Conservation Biology is having their international meeting in Rwanda. I'm definitely going, so maybe I can take a special trip to visit some areas where shoe bills are known to visit. And then I can write a blog about it and have YouTube videos on it, and it will be so much fun. One
1: day. I know. Me too. I'm like, one day. One day. (laughs) One day.
0: Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was amazing. I am sure so many people will find this helpful.
1: Seriously, I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you again for having me. I, like I said, I totally geek out when anybody asks me about my experience, about my past or about birds in general. So I just completely geek. So, so again, I, I really thank you for having me and hopefully this information can help people learn you know a little bit about about attracting backyard birds
0: once again, thank you, Lauren, so much for that amazing interview. She really delivered all of the bird basics. And thank you for being so vulnerable with us about your mistakes in the past, including using red dye. When you know better, you do better. And I think it's all great for us to be vulnerable admit our mistakes. And that helps other people move on, too. So thank you so much to Lauren. If you want to sign up for Lauren's newsletter, which I Highly recommend. It's called the Toey's Tea. Just head over to her website, which is ldfar.com, and that's far spelled P-H-A-R-R. Her social media handles on Twitter and Instagram are also LDFAR, and make sure to follow her. If you have any bird photos, you can tweet them to her and she will identify them or find the right person that can identify them if it's one that stumped her. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. And next week, we are going to be talking about some fancy things. Well, kind of fancy. I've been talking a lot about nature and animals, and we're definitely going to be talking about that. But this one, we're going to focus on sunscreen and good sunscreens, bad sunscreens, what's going on with sunscreen and the environment, thinking about sunscreen and your own health. There is a lot of sunscreen bans out there. What's really going on with that? Should we be banning these products? We're going to start to get in sunscreen which will also lead me into a conversation later on leading up into the products we use, which definitely gets into some fancy things like makeup. I love makeup. (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. And if you have any questions, feel free to contact me on social media. I love hearing from you all. If you love this podcast, please rate it and write a review. I will be forever grateful to you. Thank you so much and talk to you soon.